You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Successfully navigating the tenure process in academic gastroenterology requires strategy, fortitude, and understanding of the process and its implications. Joining me today to discuss the unwritten rules in the tenure process to help you move up the ladder and out the door as professor of medicine is professor of medicine and dean of graduate studies at the University of California San Diego, La Jolla, Dr. Kim Barrett. Kim, it's a pleasure to have you on ReachMD. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, What is tenure? What does it mean? Well, tenure was a sort of ancient concept starting in European universities that allowed faculty to have controversial views without the fear of losing their job. And that's basically what it has meant for a long time in universities, that once you've passed a certain probationary period, you are guaranteed a position and you're guaranteed your salary in perpetuity. And you can't be removed from a university position once you have tenure unless you've done something completely egregious or criminal even. So it was really a way to protect people and protect intellectual freedom. So does it? Well, I think in sort of traditional university disciplines, it has had that effect. But as medical schools have taken on this concept, especially given the much more complex job descriptions and revenue streams that support faculty salaries, it doesn't necessarily now mean for even tenure-track medical school faculty that they're guaranteed their entire salary for the rest of their lives. But I think the the basic concept that it protects intellectual freedom is, is still in place. I'm glad you brought up the issue of salary. People have part of their time tenured, so to speak, and part of their time non-tenured. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Uh, and what are the implications? Well, I think even for so-called fully tenured faculty these days, There's very few universities that can support the entire salary, particularly of a medically or clinically qualified faculty member. And so people make up the rest of their salary from a variety of sources, whether that be clinical income or research funding. And obviously, it's hard for a university to protect that, uh, at least in the long term, because they don't have a guarantee that that funding source will continue to come in the door. But I don't think it really makes any difference in a day-to-day basis, whether you're partly tenured, fully tenured, or not on the tenure track at all. We all have to make sure that we're all sort of mini entrepreneurs these days. We all have to make sure that the funding continues to come in to support our salaries. I have good news for you. You have a job. The bad news is you're not going to get paid. (laughs) Is that the real downside of tenure? I wouldn't put it as a downside of tenure. I think it just behooves everybody to have a full understanding of the revenue streams that support their salaries and realize that at the end of the day, it's their responsibility to make sure those revenue streams continue. 
So it's, it's still a financial issue that has to come into play. Well, I've heard that some universities around the country are limiting tenure to a time frame that they are guaranteeing you or giving you stability or giving you a contract for a prescribed length of time so you don't, you're not on a year-to-year salary basis. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's just, uh, you know, it sort of recognizes the reality of the situation. I'm not aware of any institutions that don't give you sort of tenure of position, but sort of spelling out the period of time over which you can have an expectation of a guaranteed salary, I think it just makes sort of sound financial sense, uh, particularly at these times when outside revenue streams are threatened. So uh, many of our listeners will be people just beginning their careers in academia. What kind of advice can you tell people about attaining tenure? Maybe we should sort of broaden the question really to go beyond tenure and, and go to the broader question of how to ensure you get promoted. And so wh- whether you are on a faculty track that carries the sort of traditional tenure for all or part of your compensation, we all need to move up. And in fact, in most universities and most medical schools, if you don't get promoted from assistant professor to associate professor, you have to leave. So doesn't really, setting aside the financial issue, we all need to do what we need to do to move up. So the most important thing is to get a position in the first place that where the expectations fit what you would like to do for your job description. Second is to make sure that once you get in the position that your activities actually match the expectation for the series that you've been appointed to. And then, uh, and here's the easy part, (laughs) make sure that you accomplish the things that you're supposed to accomplish, whether it be research, publishing papers, seeing patients, teaching at a high level, and the right mix of those things depending on your job description. I'm going to quote an unnamed source who said the best way to get tenure is to say no to a lot of things you're asked to do. Is that true? It's certainly true. I think that uh, when you're at the rank of assistant professor, you have to be very protective of your time because you get asked to do a whole bunch of things and you really need to inspect those very carefully as to whether they will help you or hinder you on your path to getting promoted. And sometimes it's helpful to talk to a more senior colleague about, you know, is it really a good idea for me to serve on the Animal Subjects Committee or um, should I take on this particular directorship of a clinical activity? Some of these things seem very flattering when you're just starting out in your career, but they can be huge sinks of your time and might be better to wait until you're a little more established before you take on particularly administrative roles because while it's important that you do some service to get promoted, you certainly don't have to be running the show and devoting all of your time to administration when you really should be focusing on your research or your clinical activities and establishing yourself. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me today to discuss success and tenure in your career is Dr. Kim E. Barrett. Well, Kim, let's go back to the, our discussion here. 
give me, uh, I'm not going to make you do 10, but give me the top five things that you think are really important for someone initiating their career to remember. Well, so at number five, we could go on from what we were just talking about, which is be careful about taking on activities that don't take you uh, further down the path to get promoted. So learn how to say no. Number four, make sure that you understand what your job description is and what your expectations are. Number three is publish, publish, publish. It's very easy to see time slip away without getting your research out in print. And so if research is part of your job description, you really need to make sure that those papers get out. And it's very hard to get papers out because they don't have any deadlines. And yet you're the one that really needs those publications for recognition. It's a very important metric that's used to decide whether you should be promoted to associate professor. Number two would be don't blow off your teaching. Many institutions, if not all, really pay attention to whether you are paying attention to your teaching responsibilities, whether that be in the clinic or in the lecture theater or teaching graduate students in the lab. You have to do a good job at that. And objectively measure that and get the feedback. And get the feedback and, you know, take responsibility to make sure those evaluations are in your file. Again, all of these things, you're the one that suffers if these things aren't there, so you should be the one to actually make the effort to make sure they are there. And then the most important thing, I think, is to write things down. Write down everything you do when you do it, because when the time comes to put your tenure package together, you're not going to remember every lecture and clinical activity or grand rounds that you did in a community hospital or things that you've done in the service realm. So it's a good idea just to have a file folder in your desk drawer that you stick things in so that you at least have a record when you come to put everything together. I know we can spend several hours on this topic. I want to pick up on two, though, in particular. The first one being mentorship, and the second one being rollback and personal life, business life balance. Let's go to, let's go to mentorship first. It's almost impossible to succeed as a faculty member without proactively seeking out mentors. And for some people, that will be somebody that they work with very closely in the research realm. But we all need mentors across the whole range of faculty responsibilities. And it's also important to realize that you don't just need to have one mentor. You may need multiple mentors. Some of those mentors may be peers rather than people more senior to you. But looking out for people who can advise you in various aspects of your faculty career is very important because nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to be an assistant professor. Uh, it's something that we all have to figure out. And having those mentors to tell you the unwritten rules are really important. All right. Well, I think we could spend hours on this topic, but I have to draw this to a close. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of California, San Diego, La Jolla, Dr. Kim Barrett, for her candid discussion and on the topic of successfully navigating the 10-year process. Thanks, Kim, and we hope to have you back. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, 
visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.